That's great. Thank you guys for organizing those songs and leading us again in worship today. Wow, what a momentous occasion, our first ever live stream as Foundation Church. Uh, Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. I just want to add my welcome. My name's Owen, and I have the privilege of leading the team here at Foundation. Uh, Today, we're going to be starting a new series looking at the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. Now, chances are, actually, you've probably heard something from this book, whether you realize it or not. And there may be some bits you recognize today or as the weeks go by. It's one of five books in the Bible, in the Old Testament, that are referred to as wisdom literature. Uh, Those books are Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Songs. They're amazing books. They're books packed full of timeless wisdom for living. And and they're so relatable to us as we read them uh, because actually they are not uh, kind of historic accounts of uh, this person went here and did that and these nations went to war over this and this person invaded that. But they are actually uh, accounts of individual people's lives and their dealings with God are written out of personal experience. They are accounts of real people going through real life struggles, wrestling with questions of purpose and meaning and and trying to work out what it looks like to live according to God's wisdom for God's world. Successes, failures, making mistakes, learning tough lessons along the way. And we read in these five books of wisdom literature the the highs and the lows, the joy, pain, agony, triumph and heartache. And that's at least in part what makes them so easy for us to engage with and, and relate to and identify with. Now we've called this series in Ecclesiastes The Search for Meaning. Because that is essentially what this book is all about. All of us have things that we pursue in life. The desire to be successful, whatever that might look like. To to be wealthy, to have status or respect, to to be in the right relationship, to, to have job satisfaction or good health. And all of those things we pursue because we believe that in some way they'll fulfill us or, or validate us or, or bring meaning to our existence. And that universal human experience, that, that search for meaning, for purpose, is, is what the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to speak right into. This book is an exploration of all of the things that we are inclined to believe will satisfy us. The writer of Ecclesiastes was a a man called Solomon. He was the king of Israel, and he was an incredibly successful king. He was rich, he was smart, he was successful, And he was famous. No matter how rich, smart, successful or famous you are, trust me, you don't come close to King Solomon. When he became king, God said to him, Solomon, what 
do you want? I'll, I'll give you anything you ask for. And Solomon asked God for wisdom. And God gave him wisdom. But not just that, on top of wisdom, God gave him vast wealth and power and influence. So much so that, that the nations of the world looked to him, actually rulers of other nations, came to Solomon for wisdom, came to learn from him. He had wealth beyond imagination, servants who would attend to his every whim, every part of his life shaped around his wants and desires. Anything he wanted, he could have it or do it. And in this book, King Solomon writes and records about the search for meaning in all of those things. He sets out to try the lot and to see what works. In his search for meaning, he's, he's going to explore the length and breadth of human experience. And over the next weeks in this series, we're going to join him on this journey, on this search for meaning. We'll look at work and wealth, relationships, wisdom, religion, and more. Solomon explored every avenue. And each week, as we do, we'll, we'll read a little from King Solomon's explorations in this book, and then we'll take some time to unpack and understand and see how it applies to our lives today. So we're going to start today in chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. So if you've got a Bible, I'd encourage you to go ahead and open it up and find Ecclesiastes. And we'll read together in just a moment to say, if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. The verses will come up on the screen for you to read along. But if you do have one, I'd encourage you to open it up. How we're going to do this today, rather than read the whole thing in one chunk, is we're just going to read a little at a time and then pause and unpack and seek to understand those bits. So without any more from me, we're going to get straight into it. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 1, we read, The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. As Solomon opens this book, he introduces himself to us uh, as the king of Jerusalem, as the son of David. That's to identify himself as Solomon, but he also writes as the teacher or preacher. He wants us to learn from him by introducing himself as teacher. In introducing himself in this way, he's saying, listen up. I've got something to share with you. Pay attention. I've lived some. I've experienced a lot of stuff. I've tried it all. And here are my findings. I want to share them with you. And so the man who people traveled vast distances to hear from, the man who had it all, the one who'd received wisdom from God himself, writes and says he wants to share with us his learnings as teacher. Guys, I don't know about you, but, but he's got me hooked, right? I, I want to lean in. I want to learn. I want to listen. What did he glean from all of this vast experience? He's got my attention. And so after introducing himself, 
we read from verse 2, he sets out his stall. And he states this, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Whoa, like steady on, Solomon. Like everything is meaningless. We we find this phrase here, vanity of vanities or or meaningless, meaningless, um, repeated throughout the book as a refrain. In fact, he uses the word there 38 times in just 12 chapters. In the Hebrew language, when you stack up a word, you're, you're emphasizing it. It's like underlining it or putting an exclamation mark or, or saying it's very that. So for the Israelites, they would have had this area in the temple that they called the Holy of Holies. It's the Holy of Holies was a way of just saying it's, it's the most holy place. They're emphasizing the point. And so this repetition of the phrase here, when Solomon writes, meaningless, meaningless, just means it's really, really that. Like it, it couldn't be more that. The word actually that he uses there is a, a Hebrew word called hebel. And actually, meaningless or vanity you might have in your Bible are are helpful to a point, but they're not actually that accurate as as a kind of complete kind of meaning translation for that word. The the word hebel means breath or vapor. It means it's it's insubstantial. You can't grasp hold of it. It's, it's fleeting. It, it isn't of lasting value. And that's really the sense that the teacher is wanting to get across to us through this word. It's, that, it's, it's like a mist or the, the faintest of breaths. It's the nearest thing to nothing you can think of. Well, Solomon, this is not the brightest start. Like, the man who had it all and tried it all writes right at the start of his book, meaningless. It's all meaningless. And and he actually says, everything is meaningless. And you think, like, everything is? Like, everything, everything? Well, not quite everything. Because actually in... This book, it doesn't take us long. We find in verse 3, and we'll read it together in a moment, actually, he lets us know where he's taking aim when he says everything is meaningless. And, and that is under the sun. And again, he uses this phrase, under the sun, 30 times in 12 short chapters. Over and over again, he says it. He wants us to know that this search for meaning under the sun, is fruitless. It's meaningless. What he's assessing in his search, what he's evaluating and appraising in his quest to find meaning, is everything there is to see, touch, smell, taste, and hear. That which we take in with our senses. Life under the sun according to our senses and according to the teacher, is a vapor. The merest of breaths, hollow, insubstantial, it's short and elusive. You could think of it like this, it's like the smoke on a candle that you blow out. 
I mean, how long does that last? It's, it's real enough, but how substantial is it? You know, it's, it's real. You can see it. You can smell it, but it's transient. It evaporates quickly, and soon enough, all trace of its existence is gone. While it's here, you can't grasp it either. You try and grab hold of it and keep it for later, reach out for it, and try, and it's gone. The teacher says, right at the outset, that's life. (laughs) And this actually is the big idea that he's going to take his book to unpack and explain. And it's not as bad news as you might think. We'll get there. See, think of it like a, a maths exam where you have to show you're working out. You're not allowed to just give the answer. You have to show how you arrived there. Well, right here in verse 2, he's given us his conclusion. But he's then going to spend the rest of the book showing us his working out. And in these next few verses that we're going to read together today, he gives us a taster of what's to come. He continues from verses 3 and 4. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. In other words, he says, you've come and you'll go. The earth was spinning long before you got here, and actually it will keep spinning long after you. In the grand scheme of it, In in the grand scheme of the history of the earth, our lives, actually, even if we live a long time by human standards, are very short. And how about what we do with the time we have? Well, he asks this question about what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? He's saying, how about what we do with the time we have? Just for all your hard work, for all your labouring, what do you have to show for it? Remember, this is a man who, who had it all. And after serious and careful consideration, he wants us to see that actually what do you really gain ultimately from all your striving, all your labour? Nothing lasting. Vapour. Money. Possessions, well, they'll eventually rot and perish. These things don't endure. They're, they're fleeting. Many of them actually don't even last a few years before they wear out and need replacing, or there's a newer model that we feel compelled to upgrade to. See, we try and pretend it isn't so, but we see this all the time if we allow ourselves to be honest about it like children building sandcastles on the beach, only for the next high tide to come and wash away any trace. We like to think our lives are built on rock, that we're in control, that we'll make a difference. Actually, that's why most of us get up and go to work each day, to make a difference, to leave our mark on the world. It's actually why so many of us have midlife crisis I'm not quite there yet, but who knows? It's not too far away. Midlife crisis is actually we begin to realize that the years are slipping away and we're yet to have the kind of impact that we thought we would. Or we're yet to find the contentment that we thought we'd feel 
from what we've invested our lives in. And the teacher prods further in this, generations come and generations go. In other words, he's, he's saying, look, our children, our, our legacy, are just part of the cycle of generations that come and go. However much we like to think will make the difference, however important and influential we are, eventually will be forgotten. Even people who live long in the memory, even those who are written into the history books, will eventually be forgotten. He writes about this in, in verse 11 of chapter 1. He says, No one remembers the former generations. And even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. See, what's gone before? All those people, all those lives, generations, all those experiences, gone. And what's happening now? All these experiences, our children, those yet to be born, eventually gone. Forgotten by those who come after Ouch, <laughs> this is a real blow to us. This isn't a comfortable thing that he's writing. And then he, he continues in verses 5 and 8 to paint a picture for us of what he means with this. So he writes, The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. See, the sun and the wind, Solomon says, go round. There is this repetitive, cyclical nature to our existence, to life, to the world, to what we observe. The seasons cycle round and round, year on year. He paints us into this picture too. It's just like the sun rising and setting, we go through this repetitive cycle too, day after day. I mean, depending on how disciplined you are, your day probably looks something like this. You set your alarm. You go to sleep. You wake up. You grab some breakfast. You get ready. You go out to work. You work. You have some lunch. You work some more. Maybe you go to the gym. Perhaps you go for a climb. You meet up with some friends. You eat some food. You set your alarm. You go to bed, you sleep, you get up, you have some breakfast, you get ready, you go out to work, the same predictable cycle continues. We do the washing, soon enough it needs doing again. We cut the grass, soon enough it needs cutting again. It's like living on a treadmill. For all our exertion, we don't really seem to get very far. Round and round. And what else 
Does Solomon observe into this? He says for us in verse 8, he says, All things are wearisome more than one can say. He says that the eye has never enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. It says, as we go through this cycle, what he wants us to understand is that as we go through this cycle, we're trying to fill up. We're searching for meaning. We're searching for satisfaction. We're looking for something that we can build our identity on, find our purpose in. But it never comes. And the quest for it exhausts us. It, it leads to weariness. And it's just as the streams go on pouring into the ocean and never fill it up, So the things of this world, the experiences that we pour ourselves into and constantly pour into us through our senses never fill us up. We're never fully satisfied by them. In searching for meaning under the sun, you will never, ever come to a point of saying, I am fully satisfied. There's nothing else I want. I am fully at rest, content. With that in mind, he he goes on and adds another layer to his reasoning, which we read in verses 9 and 10. He says this, What has been will be again. And what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. We find this cycle wearisome. We long for something new, something novel that will break the cycle, but it never really does. And actually he says in perhaps the most famous line In Ecclesiastes, there is nothing new under the sun. It doesn't mean that no new things are ever invented, but that there is nothing new under the sun in its its desire, in its origin, in its drive or purpose. There is nothing new under the sun that we will ever discover that will break this cycle and truly satisfy us. The same urge to explore, to to find something new, led people to new lands, to the depths of the ocean and into space. Each time something new was discovered, some new experience, there was a great sense of accomplishment, a great sense of newness. But you know, the impulse remained. And we look for the next thing. In the end, it's all the same. All our endeavours. That mountain you've always longed to conquer. You get there? In the end, the same result. The cycle continues. There's always something else. The eye never grows tired of taking in and in, and the ears never grow tired of hearing. We spend our lives trying to break free from this cycle, trying to find something that will truly satisfy, and it never does. Actually, we imagine that it's possible. 
And at times, we fool ourselves for a while into believing we've done it. We make believe that 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 car or that house or that new phone, as crazy as that sounds, or that relationship or that promotion will make all the difference. Like, if I just had that, then I'd be satisfied. Then I'd be fulfilled. That if we could travel to the places we want to see, if we could do all the things we've longed to do, But what happens when we get there? It brings us a moment or two of pleasure. A hit of dopamine. A feeling of success. A rush of adrenaline. A distraction from the treadmill for just a while. Things seem new. But soon enough, they seem old. And the quest begins again. The cycle continues. No sooner have you made a change to your circumstance that you believe will fulfill you than you find yourself wanting to change something else. And whatever you think you've gained will also evaporate like the smoke from that candle. It will soon be gone. And actually, you know this to be true for yourself if you stop and allow yourself to think about it, you know it to be true. Now, this could feel really bleak, right? You might be like, oh, this is not what I tuned into church to hear today. But actually, it's not bleak at all. It's actually a vital and liberating realization. See, this man who tried everything the world has to offer, wants to save you the heartbreak and exhaustion of trying to find fulfillment in all of those things. He wants us to know it's a fool's errand. He's like, guys, I've been there. I've done that. I tried it. And trust me, it's vapor. It's insubstantial. It doesn't do what you think it will for you. So how then are we supposed to live? (laughs) Like, where's the good news in all of this? Well, when we stop expecting these things to fulfill us, actually, it means that we're free to enjoy them for what they are. You see, when we seek what we're really longing for, when we seek satisfaction and wholeness and fulfillment under the sun, actually, we ask those things to bear a weight that they cannot possibly handle. We need something more solid, more reliable, more enduring than this vapour. I used to live in Plymouth on the south coast of the UK and occasionally you'd get fog that would come in from the sea, a really dense uh, kind of sea mist that would roll up into town and up the high street and it's quite a narrow high street and occasionally it would be so dense and low it would fill up the gap between the buildings on either side of the high street. And this vast greyish-white mass would be all you could see as you approached it. It would just envelop everything. You couldn't see anything. All you could see was the mist around you. It's quite an extraordinary experience. But if you reached out and tried to grab this mist, there's nothing there, right? You can't 
grab hold of it. There's nothing to be held on to. But the mist is all you could see. And if you didn't know there was something beyond it, if you didn't know there was something behind it, it would actually be quite a disconcerting experience. It would be quite unnerving to not know what was beyond that. But actually, when you know what's beyond that mist, when you know that through it there is a more solid and dependable reality, there is actually something that you can place your weight on that will hold you. There is something you can touch and grasp and hold onto. Well, when you know that's there, then you can move through the mist with confidence. You can actually enjoy the beauty of it. It's quite an amazing thing to see. You can enjoy it for what it is. Guys, if this vapour life was all there is, then the teacher's message at this point would be a thoroughly depressing one. I grant you that. It would not be a feel-good message. But this Vapor life is not all there is. This mist is not all there is. There is a more substantial, more glorious reality beyond this life. And knowing that changes everything. The teacher wants us to see our lives now in the light of an eternity yet to come. Because if all you're looking at is this mist, then sooner or later, even if you are like Solomon was, able to exhaust every possibility under the sun, sooner or later, you'll come to the same conclusion he did. Everything is meaningless. It doesn't work. And so what do we do? Well, we need to set our sights beyond the sun. We need to look to something, or actually more precisely, someone beyond the sun. You need to develop faith. Faith looks beyond this, what we can see and touch and hear and smell and taste. And it looks to God as the source of meaning, as the source of delight. You know, St. Augustine said this about God. He said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. He understood what it was to go on this search for meaning that Solomon wrote about. And he said, all of these things, our hearts are going to be restless when we're searching through those until they find their rest in you, God. See, the truth is that God has put a longing in our hearts that cannot be satisfied by something under the sun. It cannot be satisfied by anything or anyone other than him and who he is for all eternity. When we take these things under the sun and we build our lives on them, then actually we're in for a life of frustration and restlessness because we've made them ultimate things. We build our lives on them. We we place our identity in them and they won't last. And when they don't last, what happens? Well, we feel lost, groping around in the mist to try and find something else to pin our identity on. 
I don't know if you've ever been through that experience. So many of us, we, we build our lives on, on being the smartest or the richest or the, the most successful in our workplace. We build our lives on, on a relationship with a particular person and our identity is all poured into that. Do you know, I, I've seen it so many times with mums, sadly, who, who their, their identity is so wrapped up in, in being a mum and in their children. And when their children leave home and no longer depend on them in the same way, they just feel lost. I've seen it with guys I know who've been made redundant and they place so much of their identity in their job and in their position and their status. And, and when it gets taken away, as they face redundancy, all of a sudden... They're just all at sea. They're they're lost, groping around in the mist to try and find something to hold onto. Because these aren't evil things. In fact, many of them are really good things in their right and proper place. They're gifts to be enjoyed, but they're not ultimate things. They can't bear the weight that we so often place on them. We need to build our lives need to build our identity on something more solid, something altogether more sure, more steadfast, more enduring. And Jesus came to bring us into that rest. He came to bring us back into right relationship with God, where our identity no longer flows out of how much we have or, or what we do or what we accomplish or how smart we are or any of those other things, but our identity is found in him, in who he is and in who he says we are, in his finished work on our behalf at the cross. Jesus said in John chapter 10, verse 10, that he had come that we might have life and life in all its fullness. In other words, he was saying, I've I've come that you might really live, not just exist. I don't want you to just exist in this place. I've created you to, to live. For now and for eternity, we're made, you and I, for eternity. Designed, created for eternity with God. That's the hope of our hearts. Actually, that's the the meaning that we're searching for. And the promise of eternity secured for us by Jesus at the cross is our true rest that makes sense of this life. To find our identity in the finished work of Jesus, in who he is and what he's done, in who he says we are, actually frees us. It frees us from trying to place our identity in these hollow, insubstantial, vapor things that can't endure. Actually, it frees us to enjoy them for what they are. See, when your identity is found in Jesus, then actually money can just be money. You don't feel like you have to have it for status or power or position, so you can give it away or spend it without worrying. We're free. Money is not our master. doesn't own us. See, your job becomes just a job. Yeah, a job that you will work at diligently, that you will apply yourself to being as good as you can be at it. 
But succeed or fail, it doesn't define you because your identity isn't placed there. It's found in God. And in the scheme of eternity, it won't last anyway. See, Jesus removes the futility and vanity and brings purpose that you and I are dying for. He enables us to see that this life is the merest of breaths compared to the eternal hope that we can find and enjoy and experience in him. So your ultimate end is to be united with God and to enjoy and delight in his goodness forever. And my hope as we go through this series is that we would see that more and more as the weeks go by. You know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says this, in its first question and answer, it says the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. In other words, what you were made for more than anything else is to glorify your creator God and what? And to enjoy him forever. Jesus invites you to come away from searching for meaning under the sun and to find meaning in him, to understand what you were truly created for and to find life and life in all its fullness there. Living with that perspective changes everything. No, looking for, no more looking for something in this life which this life can't deliver. And as the sun comes up in the morning and burns off that mist, so the hope of Jesus rises on our lives when we put our trust in him and burns off the vapour so that we might see clearly, allows us to see what's truly enduring and meaningful and steadfast. So we get things in their proper place and proper perspective. I'm going to pray and conclude and then hand back over to the worship team for one final song as we finish our time together today. Lord, I pray that you would give us the eyes of faith. Lord, today and as we go through this series in the weeks to come, Lord, I pray that you would more and more give us eyes to see and ears to hear what you want to speak to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be those who live now in the light of eternity and in the freedom that you have purchased for us. Lord, we do thank you for this amazing world <laughs> and all that you've placed in it for us to enjoy. But I pray, God, even right now, would you help us to see it for what it is? Lord, that is great. <laughs> But compared with you, compared with the joy of knowing you, compared with the delight of knowing you, compared to our eternal hope in you, this is just, it's a vapor, it's a mist, it's like the merest of breaths. And that is such good news. It means our value and our identity can be found in, in you, and, and that's good. <laughs> and it also means that when we go through tough times in this life, we have hope that they're not lasting. They're not enduring compared to eternity with you. They're just the merest of breaths. Lord, I pray that you would help us to find our hope in you today. 
As we head into this week, Lord, I pray, would you help us to look to you for meaning and identity and not to what's under the sun. (laughs) Lord, that we would rely on you to satisfy us and not other things that simply can't bear the weight and don't deliver. We thank you that we can find true rest in you because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to enjoy it and delight ourselves in it this week. For your glory. Amen.